You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends, and welcome to this biographically-themed episode of The Myth Pilgrim. Ah, the great C.S. Lewis, the man behind the Chronicles of Narnia, is no small figure, literally, and his legacy extends to children's literature, books, mythology, theology, and of course, apologetics. I have honestly never met a single Christian who doesn't hold C.S. Lewis in the highest regard in terms of his sheer brilliance in presenting Christianity for the 20th century and beyond. He has written over 30 books, including titles like The Four Loves, The Problem of Pain, and A Grief Observed, which continue to be quoted and paraphrased and translated today. What makes this man uniquely brilliant and heads above so many other writers of our time? Well, a survey of his life and influences might give us a few clues, and what a privilege it is to present something of that to you today. However, I am not going full biography mode of his life, because you can already find that on Wikipedia and read the many books on his life. Rather, I want to draw your attention to the hidden trials that made C.S. Lewis so epic. Exploring the fires that forged this sharpening, glinting sword that C.S. Lewis became. By doing so, I hope to inspire us to realise that no trials or crosses that we go through is ever wasteful in God's sight, and that if we keep our faith throughout our trials, God can also forge and temper us into such a masterpiece that we won't even recognise ourselves. Today, after giving you the briefest, most basic sketch of his life story, I will focus on three main trials of C.S. Lewis. One his small disability and lack of childhood friends, two, his very difficult domestic life, and three, his existential faith crisis. There are, of course, other huge trials he went through, such as losing his best friends in the trenches of World War I and his terrible grief at losing his wife to cancer. But I hope that the three trials I've chosen today are more relatable to you and I and so worthy of deeper attention. Okay, so first, a brief biography. Clive Staples Lewis was born in Ireland in 1898. When he was seven, his family moved to England. There, he was homeschooled with private tutors until his mother's death in 1908, when Lewis was just nine years old. His father sent Lewis and his brother, Warney, to various boarding schools, where Lewis felt isolated and bullied, adopting atheism by the age of 15. As a young man, Lewis began taking classes at the University College of Oxford before being enlisted into the British Army in World War I. In the trenches, he watched as two of his best friends were slain while he himself was dangerously wounded and soon discharged from the army. Back at home, he soon began publishing poems in school magazines, and these earliest works showed Lewis's brilliance, and in a few short years, he became a much sought-out professor at Oxford University, where he would continue to work for 29 years. Lewis also became part of a group of friends called The Inklings, which acted as a sort of informal literary discussion group. 
Through them, he met the Catholic Lord of the Rings writer J.R.R. Tolkien, and after a long and tedious struggle and wrestling, Lewis reconverted back to Christianity in 1931. And boy, did he begin to write! Over the next few decades, he published some of his most popular works of apologetics, theology, and fiction. During the reign of German bombs in World War II, Lewis gave his fellow Englishmen hope and consolation through the many addresses on BBC Radio. And after the war, these famous addresses were compiled in the book now called *Mere Christianity*. During this time, Lewis remained a bachelor, living with his brother who was struggling with alcoholism, as well as a Mrs. Jenny Moore, the mother of one of his slain friends from World War One. But when he was in his fifties, he finally met the love of his life, an American writer named Joy Davidman, and the two quickly bonded over their writings. During this time, Joy was actually diagnosed with cancer, and shortly after their marriage, Joy passed away. His journey through grief inspired him to write *A Grief Observed*, which has since given companionship to thousands of people during their own season of grief. Three years later, in 1963, Lewis himself passed away on the same day that JFK was assassinated. Okay, there's C.S. Lewis's life in a small nutshell. The first trial we'll now zoom in on is around the theme of Lewis's little-known disability and lack of childhood friends. C.S. Lewis did not have an easy childhood. Most people don't know that Lewis was in fact born without the middle joint on his thumbs, a condition he shared with his brother Warney. This meant that he couldn't bend and flex his thumbs like you and I could, and the impact of this upon Lewis's childhood was immediate. First of all, it meant he was totally hopeless at all team sports that involved ball catching and holding a bat or a racket or anything that needed dexterity, and he was teased by this so much by his peers that he felt he wasn't worthy to draw breath. His thumbs also meant he was clumsy with more manual skills such as cooking and gardening and woodworking. Many also don't realize that, despite being infamous for his influence upon Oxford and Cambridge, Lewis was actually not an Englishman but an Irishman. As a boy, this made him the object of ridicule too, and his accent further ostracized him from his young peers. So he was privately tutored until his mother died when he was nine, and then changed schools frequently, finding his early teen years socially competitive in a way he couldn't compete in. As such, Lewis did not have many friends at all, aside from his brother, and was a rather shy and reclusive young man. Even when he was an infamous writer and lecturer with a booming voice, Lewis was always a private man and shied away from the limelight as often as he could. Hence, he lived most of his adult life as a bachelor. Now, at this point, some of you may be surprised that all of this was in C.S. Lewis's life, because many of us can, in fact, relate with his experience of social exclusion, anxiety, introversion, and even maybe to some degree his thumb disability. However, where the Lord closes a door, He opens a window, as Reverend Mother reminds us. Where physical growth and exercise was limited as a child, Lewis exercised his mind and imagination instead, and boy, did he exercise it! This excluded child turned instead to the world of books, reading and writing, and fell in love with authors like Lewis Carroll and Beatrix Potter. The latter, which first gave him the space to create his own talking animal world, which he called Buxton. <laughs> you can probably guess what Buxton led to many decades later as an author. In the absence of adventurous childhood friends, 
Lewis was able to turn to the adventuring of the great heroes and heroines of Greek, Norse and Celtic sagas, beginning his lifelong love for classical mythology, something that would in turn nourish his conversion as a young adult. See, nothing is wasted in the economy of God, for without his experience of childhood isolation, there would be no bookish C.S. Lewis, no rich development of imagination, no professor of literature, and probably no Narnia. Lewis even cites the inconvenience of using a typewriter because of his thumbs, meaning that his writing could flow and be set free in a way that only handwriting could enable. Hmm. Okay, one more comment on his early years. Because Lewis found it difficult fitting into the state schooling system, his very distant father actually sent him as a young man to be privately tutored one-on-one -on -one by one William Kirk Fitzpatrick. The Great Knock, as he was nicknamed, was no pushover of a professor at all, and from day one challenged the young Lewis to think logically, to demand absolute clarity in his expression, and to take no presumptions for granted. Later on in life, Lewis would look fondly back on his private tutelage with Fitzpatrick, citing his own clarity and foolproof logic was forged in him by this wiry professor. Lewis respected him so much he actually named the Lion, Witch and Wardrobe character of Professor Kirk after him, who, if you remember, challenges the four Pevensey children with a logical argument about how Lucy simply couldn't logically be lying about her discovery of a certain magic wardrobe. Trial 2 C.S. Lewis's Difficult Domestic Life Lewis never had it easy at home or in the family life, right from childhood all the way to his death. After his mother's untimely death when he was nine, Lewis's relationship with his father became deeply strained as his father grew more and more emotionally distant. You could almost say he grew up with an absentee father, which we now know in some ways is even more painful than losing a father outright. But it wasn't like Lewis wasn't partially to blame for the estrangement. He would later write in life that the strain with his father was probably the greatest sin of his life. But luckily, they did get to reconcile shortly before his father died, where they could spend six golden weeks together. Two more significant domestic figures punctuate the decades of C.S. Lewis's adult years. His brother Warney, and also a certain Mrs. Moore, who shared a home with Lewis even throughout his years of fame. Mrs. Janie Moore was a fascinating figure indeed, and also very mysterious. During World War I, Lewis had made a promise to his friend Paddy that should one of them be killed, the surviving one would look after the surviving parent. True to his word, when Paddy died, Lewis took Mrs. Moore into his own home and lived with her until her own death 30 years later. Mrs. Moore in turn became the mother and father Lewis never had, and so a psychologically complex sort of codependent relationship developed. What was their relationship like? Well, despite being 20 years older than Lewis, Mrs. Moore was described as a handsome woman according to the brothers, and Lewis was very much loyal to her to a fault, even at great personal cost. What we do know about their relationship comes mostly from the diaries of Warney, who definitely had a distaste for the woman. He describes the demanding nature of Mrs. Moore, her unreasonableness, her making Lewis do chore after chore, even at the height of his career. Warney mused what greatness Lewis could have become, <laughs> lol, if this woman wasn't always hovering over his adult life. 
he attributes to Mrs. Moore, quote, all the horrors of the kilns, which was the name of their home, the spite, envy, hatred, malice, and all uncharitableness, the thousandth repetition of a pointless story, the pervading discomfort, end quote. Hmm. Any of us share that kind of relationship in the home we live in? Speaking of Warney, we know that he was largely a positive influence in C.S. Lewis's life, being his closest friend, supporter, advocate, and even his secretary. A brilliant man in his own right, C.S. Lewis's brother was part of the famous Inklings group. In fact, it was from Warney's letters that we learn about the fateful conversation between Lewis and Tolkien, one which tipped him over the edge from theism into Christianity. However, we also know that Warney suffered from alcoholism, something which plagued him, especially in his final years. Few know that C.S. Lewis initially declined a professorship offer from Cambridge because he had to take care of his brother, whose alcoholism disqualified him from looking after himself. Think about that. The great C.S. Lewis, the world-famous author who spoke to England during the reign of German bombs, this man lived with a domineering woman and an alcoholic, and knew firsthand all the usual trials and tribulations that comes with such a trial. See, dear friends, just through these three figures alone, we know something of why books like The Screwtape Letters and The Problem of Pain were so accessible. When C.S. Lewis writes, he wasn't writing armchair philosophy or lofty theology, but one grounded in gritty, real-life pains and sufferings, sufferings often without any redemptive meaning. About Mrs. Moore, Lewis says, If it were not for her, I should know little or nothing about ordinary domestic life as lived by most people. I was brought back down to earth and made to work with my hands. End quote. This groundedness is why the writings of C.S. Lewis appeals to both coal sweeper and CEO, both the baker and the office clerk, both children in a nursery as well as the prime minister in cabinet. Lewis, despite his brilliance, wasn't actually an academic at heart, nor did he ever even study theology, which is staggering considering he's probably the most understandable theologian in the last 50 years. Rather, C.S. Lewis was an everyday man with an incarnational faith, who married his faith experiences with flawless logic. Like our Lord Jesus himself, who spent 30 years in obscurity living the quiet life of carpentry and domestic chores, C.S. Lewis had a hidden life, one which grounded him in real life and real people and real human experiences. So, dear friends, are you struggling with a rough life at home with your parents or your spouse? Are you struggling with someone close to you with addiction, feeling estranged from a loved one, or feeling stuck in a relationship? Grace is present for you too. Perhaps through faith, such trials can ground us back in humility, the type of humility that can in fact spring us in turn into sainthood. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. This final section will highlight the trial of C.S. Lewis's faith crisis leading up to his conversion, of which he spells out in much detail in his letters and in his biography. 
It is easy to assume that C.S. Lewis was born into a holy family with great faith and a brilliant zeal for apologetics, but this couldn't be further from the truth. Lewis's conversion was a long, drawn-out process, one that happened in stages, beginning with a conversion of his imagination, then later on his intellect, and then finally his will. While he was an atheist, he wrestled with both philosophy and mythology as to how Christian claims could actually be true. He later admits that the fairy tales of George MacDonald and the prose of G.K. Chesterton shook him up real bad, forcing him to admit that he did have a yearning for God that he'd rather not have. The night Lewis converts from atheism to theism, he said that, quote, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. End quote. Interesting. Perhaps the greatest wrestling C.S. Lewis underwent was justifying how Christianity wasn't just another ancient myth. After all, the Christian story contains many of the same themes as the Greeks and the Norse and the Egyptian myths. As hinted at earlier, it was through his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien that he finally was convinced that Christianity was in fact the fulfilment of all previous myths, all of which were merely precursors to the real myth, capital R, capital M, that is, Jesus Christ. Just as philosophy attempted to reach the divine through the intellect, myth had attempted to reach the divine through the imagination. C.S. Lewis saw that humanity's yearnings of the intellect and the imagination finally met in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, saying that Christianity is the myth that became fact without ceasing to be a myth. He writes that, quote, The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God comes down from the heaven of legend to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a boulder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be a myth. That is the miracle. God is more than a God, not less. Christ is more than boulder, not less. We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about the parallels and pagan Christs. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they were not. End quote. Dear friends, C.S. Lewis's unique ability to be able to bring Christianity and mythology together is precisely the catalyst that would make him one of the world's greatest evangelists. For C.S. Lewis is in fact a storyteller at heart, and along with Tolkien have saturated today's secular culture with the Gospel story. Both the Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings have proven how powerful and compelling and inspiring Christianity is as a story, when it's not just reduced to moral principles and rules and theological tidbits. Let us then take a leaf out of Lewis's conversion story and ourselves rediscover our faith as a story, which is, of course, something this podcast that you're listening to is also trying to do. And so we arrive at the end of our episode, where even me recording it has somehow re-inspired myself to become inspired by Lewis's life all over again. 
Can I just say for the massive CS Lewis fans out there, I have, yes, left out a huge trial in CS Lewis's life, and that is the sheer loneliness of bachelorhood until his mid-50s, and then flowing from that, the bliss of a brief married life with joy, and then the crushing weight of grief that followed after her passing. What a story there is to be told there, one that is in fact brilliantly captured by Anthony Hopkins in the movie Shadowlands. I have managed to find a copy of that movie on YouTube, so if you like a bit more C.S. Lewis biography, definitely worth a watch as a practical pilgrim exercise. However, if you'd like to read about Lewis's life from the horse's mouth, I do suggest reading Lewis's own autobiography, Surprised by Joy, from which much of the detail of this episode was gleaned from. You can easily find the book readily enough, and it is definitely purchasable online. So there we have it, folks. Hope today's episode has given you a new appreciation of this great man, and may his life inspire your ordinariness to become extraordinary. Until next time, chaps, cheerio, (laughs) take care, and God bless.